uh, discussion is going to be somewhat of a battle between worldviews. Because there's one worldview that looks at this and says, there's a God of little science, a God that created science, something that's bigger than science itself. But on the other hand, there's a worldview that's much more prevalent in society that says there's a God of science, that science is all we need to know what is life and what is truth. And as long as we get a grasp of that and hang on to that, then that's going to be the thing that tells everything and that helps us focus our lives and is what is ultimate truth. And so today's discussion and, and presentation is going to be about a battle of, of worldviews. I think it's important for you to, to understand that at, at the beginning. Because I'm sure you've heard oftentimes the, the discussion that, that science and religion are, are diametrically opposed. Either they're, well, a number of different things. One, that science is equal to religion, a form of religion. One, that science is greater than religion or less than religion, depending on which worldview you take. Or that the two are contrary to one another and don't coexist whatsoever and don't relate to one another. And in 2005, there was a Gallup poll that basically asked this question. What comes closer to your view about the relationship between science and religion? They generally agree with one another. They generally conflict with one another, or they don't relate to one another at all. Now, just as a little pop quiz, how many of you believe or, or comes closer to your view about that relationship between science and religion that they generally agree with one another? Just a quick raise of your hands. Okay, and how many believe they generally conflict with each other? About the same amount, and they're not related to each other at all. Not most. So give or take a third of each, which ironically is reverse of what the Gallup poll found. The Gallup poll of all of society, not just Christian youth, found that a quarter of people think that science and religion agree with one another, whereas three quarters believe that A, they conflicted with one another or they weren't related at all. So you can see that what society believes about science or religion is quite different from what Christian youth believe. But even in that, we had a one-third to a half on each side of the equation that, that they generally agree with each other, each other or they conflict. So even within our circles, we're confused. And we can see that as we dig deeper into some of the statistics, that there's somewhat of this higher education dilemma. And you can probably understand it if you look at it this way. Think of your, probably your grandparents or my parents' age, um, or great-grandparents if you have some, have some that are still living. Most of them didn't go to high school, didn't even receive a high school education. And they held a very biblical worldview. And for the most part, were always attending churches, um, church services. Everything revolved around church. However, when the when you look at the statistics of today, with those that are college graduates of today and you guys of tomorrow, there's a drastic difference. 
most Christian youth hold a secular or evolutionary worldview, or at least somewhat agree with it or believe in it, their church attendance has dropped by about 25%. They rate their spirituality as less than previous generations. Um, And even those that enter into college as freshmen and declare themselves as born again, by the end of the four years, 60% of those Christian youth that classify themselves as born again, at the end of four years of college or university, no longer consider themselves born again. That's pretty scary. Because that's a battle of worldviews that most Christian youth are losing. That's what that tells me. But why? Is that is somehow higher education wrong or evil or sinful? No, I, I don't think that's the case. I think most of us have and will get higher education, and that's a, that's a good thing. In order to get jobs, in order to, to have a, an income, in order to provide for your family, in order to do anything almost in life aside from work at a fast food restaurant, you need a higher education. And even that, you almost need a, a, a higher education. So why the dilemma of this higher education? What happens in the, the, the realms of higher education? I think one of the underlying reasons why Christian youth struggle so much is that they have fewer peers and professionals that are godly Christians in their lives. It revolves around their friends. It revolves around school. It revolves around getting a a 90s in an education and, and getting at the top marks of the class. And in that process, what gets lost is the influence from godly peers and other professionals um, that are Christians. But I think it goes a little deeper than that, is that our Christian youth aren't prepared for an education or, or prepared with a sound education in apologetics and worldviews. And apologetics meaning defending their faith, the ability to defend their faith or the ability to um, profess their faith and stand up for their faith. And by worldviews is, is being able to, to get an a, a intellectual reasoning about different perspectives of life and beliefs and doctrines and things like that. And tied in along with that is not being prepared to receive an education from 99% of the professors that you encounter at university and college that will come to you from a secular humanist worldview. And unless, of course, obviously you're going to a, a Christian university or college. But we're not prepared for that. And that's kind of what the start of today is. As I'm hoping to at least, in some ways, start to prepare you for that and start to equip you with some tools and some knowledge and some education so that you will be ready to give an answer to those that would ask of you a reason of the hope that lies within you as a young Christian or as a young person that grew up in a Christian home or around Christian people. So science and scripture, are they that opposite to one another? Um, do they conflict that much? You, you, if you haven't heard, you probably will hear that secular science is the only thing that can give us real, solid, tangible answers for the questions of life. Um, it's the only way, the only guide that we have to, to true knowledge. And even what is reality? is something that's, that's testable and tangible and I can, I can 
touch through science. And if you can't test it, you can't quantify it, you can't measure it, then really it's nothing but a bunch of idle speculation that somebody has. A philosophy, an idea, a religion, a tenet, a doctrine, a belief. It's nothing but a bunch of hot air that you personally hold to if you can't test and quantify it in, in a laboratory somehow. And that's why typically religion and theology gets clumped into that idle speculation because how do you test religion? How do you test a doctrine? How do you test a belief? It's a philosophy. It's a way of thinking. It's an understanding, but it's not testable by science. So therefore, well, that's just a bunch of hot air. We stick with the hard sciences that we can touch and, and handle. But one of the things that we can, when we study scripture, one of the verses that, that comes out to us, and, and I think most of us probably have memorized to a certain degree, is the one in 2 Timothy where Paul is encouraging young Timothy to study to show himself approved unto God. You know, someone that doesn't need to be ashamed and can stand up and testify of his faith and his belief because he's able to rightly divide the word of truth, the Apostle Paul said. That word rightly divide in the Greek basically means to dissect, which is ironic because we're talking about science, is to dissect the word of truth, to expound on it correctly is what it means. But does that mean we only need to dissect the word of truth? Or should we be also rightly dividing or dissecting or expounding on correctly what is science? And so today, we're going to rightly divide between two types of sciences, empirical science and historical science. And what do we mean by that? Empirical science is what we would know as the hard sciences, physics chemistry, math, the things that are very tangible, very clear, very distinct. Um, neuroscience, once we get into, again, studying cancer, uh, all kinds of different sciences that are out there that, that are very hard in that sense. Compared to what we would call historical sciences, which is more the soft sciences, things that are looking at more the things that, that we can't test. And let, let's go into maybe more what that is. Hard science is that which, which studies the current functioning of the world. So cancer research, studying what types of treatments work better with cancer. Um, by any biochemistry, we're studying how to make up new um, molecules or new atoms or new drugs for, for different things. All of those things are, are hard sciences that are studying the current functioning of the world, whereas historical science tries to study the history of what happened previously in the world. So in empirical science, you use, you, you study the process. You use the scientific method and you go through and you observe and then you test and then you, or you, you make it repeatable and then you predict it and then you ensure that it's falsifiable. All that, the aspects of what you've heard of a hundred times in, in the scientific method. Whereas in historical science, instead you don't observe the process as it's happening, all you do is you study the results or the effects of what happened and then make up an explanation or story or generate some ideas or theories of how that possibly could have resulted in this. You see the difference between watching the actual process as it happens versus seeing the results of the process and making some assumptions about what the process was that got you to here. 
And so there's a big difference between empirical science and historical science. Again, empirical, you can test, you can design an experiment, you can repeat it, you can observe it, you can see it all happening right before your eyes. Whereas in historical science, you really can't do that, can you? You can't test the history because it's past. All you can do is come up with some plausible ideas, some conceivable ideas, some possible ideas of how you got there. And in reality, empirical science makes up 95% of what goes on out there, whereas historical science is really only about 5% of what is truly science. But this is made to seem a lot bigger than what this is by those that would posit that science is all there is um, to know. And if you think about this as it relates to you guys as Christian youth, 95% of science is irrelevant to Christians. It is not, whether carbon is, or whether water is H2O or H3O, who cares if this molecule can't attach to this molecule because this one's right-handed and this one's left-handed? Who cares? It doesn't matter to me. As a, it doesn't affect my faith. 95% of science is irrelevant to Christians. At the same time, 95% of Christianity is irrelevant to science. Science doesn't care whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminianist or a Calvinist. It doesn't matter. Doesn't, they don't, science doesn't care that, well, what, what are spiritual gifts? Like somehow that affects what is good science. Or, well, how do you define the Trinity? It's irrelevant to science. So 95% of Christianity is irrelevant to science, and 95% of Christianity is, or vice versa, vice versa, of science is irrelevant to Christianity. They, they don't match on 95% of the time. But in that 5% of the time where they do somehow relate to one another, in the creation-evolution debate, mainly, a large majority of that 5% actually lends itself to a belief in God. And that's where I want to share some of these things with you, because I don't think you get to see a lot of it. Um, you won't get to see it in the schools systems, that, that's for sure. Um, and so we want to be able to, to, to strengthen your belief and your foundation that, that there is a God of science, a God that has created science, a God that is bigger than science. Because in general, this is what the world posits as how it all began. Not, something came from nothing out of nothing, magically rearranged into all these things for no reason whatsoever, and poof, it all turned into living things. And that's, we're told, makes perfect sense. That's how it all began, or did it. So if we look back into science, into even the historical science, What does it say happened in the beginning? Basically, until about the 19th century, majority of scientists said that basically the universe had been infinite or eternal. It always was, it always, and it always will be. It's just there forever. And that's what large majority of scientists believe until about the 19th century. As the 19th century progressed forward then, a man by the name of Sir Edward Edwin Hubble, which we all know of Hubble Telescope, it's attributed basically, or um, referring to him, inferring his, uh, his findings, he made a bunch of discoveries. 
as he was staring out into space into these small little pinpoints, he began to discover that these pinpoints were not just a star, a single star, but actually an entire galaxy as he got further. And the further that galaxy was, the further he studied it, and the further he got in, in viewing it, the redder it seemed to get in its light shift. Um, it's what they call the red shift in things. And in the calculations, determine that the farther that galaxy was, the redder it was, and therefore it seemed to indicate that the universe was actually expanding and getting bigger, not static as it was infinite or eternal. So now scientists in the beginning of the 20th century were beginning to look at, is this universe actually getting bigger over time? At the same time, another famous scientist, Einstein, began also with his theory of relativity. And as he began to apply this, his theory of relativity to what he began to see within the universe, outside of just our own little world, he began to discover a number of different things as well. That the universe wasn't this static, eternal, forever thing. It was either imploding upon itself or exploding. And so he began to look at it a little bit more and discovered that the force of gravity, which should have been pulling things in, was being countered by a force that was pushing things out. And as he studied it more, he found that this force that was pushing it out, this counter force, was actually greater than the force of gravity, which again he came to the same conclusion that this universe was expanding, not static. So what does that mean exactly then? So if we, so I made up my own little universe on a balloon. So basically what science was showing is that the universe throughout time was expanding. And with each, although it's kind of all black all over because permanent marker doesn't work on balloons, but. So it's getting bigger over time. And it continues over time to continue to get bigger and bigger. Which when you think about it, that makes us seem really, really small, doesn't it? If what we know of the universe is continually expanding. So then scientists said, well, if this is what we observe happening and infer as happening, then what happens if we go from where we are backwards in time? So then theoretically, things should be getting smaller and smaller and tighter together and tighter together until we come to a single point in time what scientists call a singularity, where there was no matter, no time, and no space. So scientists, from their own science, now had to admit there had to be a beginning somewhere. It had to start from something, or at some point in time, with something. Now scientists, this is what they refer to as the Big Bang, at that singular point in time when everything just all of a sudden just exploded into being. This was their, this is from a physicist, his description. There was an explosion, not an explosion like those familiar on Earth, starting from a definite center and spreading out to engulf more and more of the air, but an explosion which occurred simultaneously everywhere, filling all space from the beginning with every particle of matter rushing apart from every other particle. 
Within the tiniest split second, the temperature hit 100,000 million degrees centigrade, much hotter than even the hottest star. The matter rushing apart consisted of negatively and positively charged electrons, positively charged protons, neutrinos, and photons. The universe was instantly filled with light. What does that sound like? Sure sounds like, let there be, and bang, there it was. But much like what we see in creation and what we know of creation from a biblical worldview, did God create man on day six as a sperm and an egg? And put him together and then grow him in, I don't know what, because there's no womb of a first woman? How did he create man? Mature, as an adult. How did he create animals? Did he create it the perpetual chicken or the egg? He created it as a mature animal. And therefore, we can believe and infer that God, when he created the universe, created it mature and complete. Not as a singularity that had to explode out everywhere, but instantaneously in all of its grandeur, in all of its perfection, in all of its abundance and vastness. One of the other things that scientists um, refer to is what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. And, and Kalam basically refers to a, a very high academic theology of the Middle Ages. Um, and really all this says is that Whatever begins to exist, if something just, you happen to see something that just has begun to exist, there obviously must be a cause to it. It didn't just spring out from nowhere. Um, the idea that, that from this big bang could spring everything from nothing is ridiculous. I mean, it, it almost borderlines uh, on something magic. But yet, in magic, you at least have a magician that started it all. Magic just doesn't happen by itself. But yet that's what's being inferred to by, by science as, as what happened in the Big Bang. And if the universe had a beginning, like they're showing, a singularity, then it had a beginning. And it began to exist. So therefore, the universe has a cause. If you're sitting in a quiet room, and all of a sudden you hear a big bang. What comes to your mind? What was that? Where did that come from? Nothing, nothing, it came from nothing. What nothing, nothing caused it, it just, there was just this bang. You're gonna think the person's nuts, or you're nuts in hearing it. If you have a bang, as science posits, then you have to have a banger. Simply put, you can't have a bang without a banger. And so therefore, we have to start thinking of these things is that if science is saying this, then let's point science to, okay, what's, what's the result of your argument? So there's the aspect of, of what happened in the beginning and what caused the beginning. But even more so than that, science is beginning to show us that this universe is uniquely tuned to sustain life. 
there's this incredible and extraordinary balance between and, and precision between all these laws and how the fundamental laws of physics and physics, biology, and chemistry hold this earth together, not just this earth, but literally the entire universe. And scientists have, have investigated 35 different factors that are out there that they have found that if these, each of these factors were just slightly smaller or slightly larger to a millionth or a billionth of a percentage that this universe couldn't exist. Do you realize the, the, the incredible precision and accuracy that this, this entire universe is balanced on? You know, they talk about being balanced on a razor's edge, you know, it has to be just perfect. Well, that's what the universe is balanced on, a razor's edge of information. And just a couple examples. So the ratio of the number of protons to the number of neutrons or to electrons within each of the cells that make up all of life has to be exactly balanced. The chance of it being outside of that is, is extremely impossible uh, and occur occurring by chance. So the order of 1 in 10 with 37 zeros after it is the likelihood of this happening, this exact ratio happening by chance. That would be like if we try to put it into analogy. If we covered the entire North American continent, Alaska, Canada, US, Mexico, in dimes, all the way up to the height of the moon. Dimes all the way up, all the way around everywhere. Um, so basically a height of about 239,000 miles. And then next, pile the dimes to that on a billion other continents, just like North America, to the same height. And just put one dime in there that was painted red. And blindfold somebody and ask them to go find it. Think of how many years that would take, or millennia that might take, or whatever, um, to find that one. By chance, I mean, hey, a blind squirrel occasionally will find an acorn too, I suppose, um, if God provides it. But again, it's, it's something that's so impossible. Our minds can't comprehend it. But you're saying there might be a chance, right? Well, I'm, I would highly doubt it. The force of gravity. The force of gravity is so specific, not just on the Earth, but in the entire universe, that if that happened by chance, if it was slightly more or slightly less, it would crush all of animals on Earth, and including humans, or we would have these really thick thighs to keep us up from being pulled down onto the ground. There wouldn't be any insects because they wouldn't be able to hold themselves up. Or if it was smaller, we obviously wouldn't exist because we'd all float away into space. Um, but it's exactly where it needs to be, to the point that by chance it couldn't be. If it happened by chance, it would be one in 10,000 billion, billion, billion. Don't buy, uh, don't buy a lottery ticket on those odds, because there's a pretty good chance you're not going to get it. Um, and I've got a little clip that, um, that kind of describes this a little bit better than I do. For those of you who have seen True You um, by Focus on the Family, actually, I've got a picture this is going to show now.
time-wise, I'm going to skip that because I've got another one anyhow. Um, so what are the chances? Could, could this happen by chance? And for that, instead, I'll, I'll skip ahead to, to a little thing. Um, a combination lock only has 40 dials to it. Right? There's just 40 gradations that you can choose from. And you need three combinations or three sets of numbers to make up, make this lock open. So 40 times 40 times 40. One in, you have a 1 in 64,000th chance of opening this lock. Jesse, give it a shot. Tough, huh? Couldn't do it. Give it a try. Now, we don't have 64,000 people here at camp, and I wouldn't go about trying to go through everybody, but come on, you got to try. It can all be three ones. <laughs> I took that off first. <laughs> Lucas. Well, you got a chance, and we'll move on. Get out of here. <laughs> Lucas is a genius? Is everybody believing Lucas is a genius now? He needs out of what? Knows how to pick locks. Yeah, he might have a really good ear to hear the tumblers. Sorry, maybe what? Maybe he has a good ear. Maybe you should buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> Anything else? May, are you inferring that there was rigged? Why do you infer that it's rigged? One in 64,000, I mean, that's not, I mean, people buy lottery tickets at one in 100, one in 200, one in a million, and still win. But do you, and somebody has to win. But yeah, you're right. What happens when we, when we see such, we'll call them big odds at one in 64,000, that someone gets it, and we automatically infer somebody must have rigged the game for that guy to get it, which he did. I did. I rigged it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but again, the point is that's such small odds, and we're always suspicious when when chance works. By some odd chance, somebody got it, and we automatically assume that couldn't be true. There's something that was rigged in that game, and that's important because. We tend to infer that there's a rigor when the game is discovered. But yet science doesn't do that when they see such ridiculous odds as this. 
assume that somehow there's a rigor to this whole fine-tuning of the universe. That's how they try to make this number smaller by saying there's this universe maker out there. But then again, the question is, who made the universe maker? Did the universe maker just always be? And it just starts spitting out all these universes? Like, again, by, by trying to make this number, which is ridiculous, we can't even comprehend this, to a smaller number that we can comprehend, we have to come up with an or even more ridiculous idea. That's like saying, well, where did life begin? Did it be begin on Earth? No, 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 it didn't involve on her. It came from aliens on another planet that sent it here. Where did they come from? Exactly, right? Like, there's always that, you can always go back one more. Where's the banger? Where's the rigor to the whole thing? Um, there's a third aspect to this um, called irreducible, irreducible complexity. And basically, it says that even in the simplest of systems, being a little mousetrap, how many components does it take to make up a mousetrap? About nine, right? One, two, three, four, five, spring six, seven, eight, and the wood nine. Well, the cheese doesn't make the mousetrap. It just helps it work. Um, okay, fine. We'll count it 10. Um, but even if we had all these components, if I put all these components on a table, it's not a mousetrap. It's just a bunch of parts. It still has to be put together in the right order in order for this to work and snap and break the neck of the mouse. The components in and of themselves don't make the mousetrap. The process of building the mousetrap makes the mousetrap. And how do you build this with an unguided, unintelligent, purposeless, random chance? It just can't be done. It doesn't make any sense. That's the irreducible complexity on a simple level. Now if we go to a, a more complex level, any machine or that, that we can think of that, that has all these parts that have to put together, the cars that we drive in, every component of, of life that, as we know it has this. And there's a famous scientist that says, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Famous scientist was none other than Charles Darwin himself in The Origin of Species. And yet we see this all around us, but those that posit Darwinism, science, would never admit to this. So what, is, what are some examples? Blood clotting. You cut yourself. Blood immediately opens up your skin. Blood immediately begins to gush out. Your body then sends the clotting agents down there, which with the fibrins begin to clot up and congeal, and now you have a scab that seals your blood in so you don't bleed out and die. The system is highly choreographed with 10 steps that involve all these different components to it. But the key is not all these components. The key is in the regulation of those components and the process in which it begins to happen in your body. And it's so perfectly balanced that any imbalance in the system causes you a major problem in life. It has to clog in the exactly the right spot. If you have a blood clot in your brain, you will likely die from it. If you have a blood clot in your leg, you could have your leg amputated because of it. 
If you cut yourself, you want it to clot right there in the exact right spot. And it has to happen at the right time. If it doesn't clot, if the clot happens 20 minutes later after you've cut yourself, depending on where you cut yourself and how big it is, you could bleed out and die. It has to happen at exactly the right moment. It has to be just the right amount. If it doesn't send enough clotting agent, then you still bleed out and die. If it does too much, then it's going to block up the whole system, and you're going to have a major blood clot and die. And it has to be just the right size for the cut. Not smaller, not bigger, but the exact right size. So everything is all perfectly correlated to fit together. And there's another example, uh, and this one doesn't have sound on it, but I picked it off of YouTube, um, of a bacterial flagellum. And this is a computer animation of how this flagellum or this whip that, that causes the bacteria to be able to swim through um, all the different components that make up this thing and how it then begins to be created. It's just a little minute long, but if you look at all the various components that make up just a single microscopic bacteria, how does this evolve? Because without it, without the first component and then the next component, it, it can't survive. It needs all components there at the same time in order to be able to do what it's supposed to do. It can't have just one part versus another part, but not this or not enough of that, and all these individual pieces. How does this evolve? It's just fascinating. And this is an example of the, the irreducible complexity within even the bacterial world, let alone our human bodies or other living organisms or the world and, and the universe in general. And not only does the bacterial unit have just one of these, but it actually needs multiple of these to be able to direct itself and, and get to where it needs to be. So these have to be happening simultaneously on all points because without all of them, again, there's no existence. And all of this happens, this, these little flagellums, they spin at an RPM of 10,000. We don't even have some engines that can function at that level that just happen by themselves. And now if we go from the microscopic bacteria to the more inner workings of a cell, this one has some nice music on <laughs> And this is put together by Harvard College. But you're going to see all kinds of various systems that are happening within your body right now. These are mechanisms. These are machines, biological machines that are doing these incredible things within your body at a level that we can't see without technology. But this somehow happened by chance, by randomness, by lack of order. Machines that are zipping things together and unzipping them, machines that are carrying things and back and forth. It's absolutely fascinating when you get into the hard empirical science where everything has to happen just perfectly and exactly.
look at this little thing. Like, this is in your body carrying another thing along. If that doesn't look human, like, I don't know what does. I mean, that's awesome. Describe how that evolves, how that comes to be without God creating. So within, within our bodies are incredible complexity. Again, irreducible complexity because without one component and the other, at the same time, multiple components, thousands, millions of components, how does life begin? How does life consist? How does life exist? And if we go even deeper into that, the aspect of biological information proves that, that there is a God, there is a creator. And science itself points to that if we look into to biological information. And when we do, we, we have to distinguish between three different things. That's randomness, simple order, and information. Randomness is obviously as simple as if we, if we create a computer program to, to develop a random thing. We would say select one letter and then select another letter and just repeat it. Very simple, two instructions. Any computer can do it. It's nonspecific and it's very simple. On the other hand, when we talk about now putting a simple order together, again, it's not that difficult of a process. Say we're going to build 500 ME pairs. So again, we would tell a computer, select an M, select an MEE, and then repeat. Three simple instructions. Again, not a real big deal. It's specific because it's saying a specific letter or two specific letters. Um, and it's simple still, but now we get into it's repetitive because it's ME, ME, ME up to 500, and then it stops. And the parts are before the whole. In order to get the whole string of MEs, you start with the parts, ME, 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 until you get to a string of 500. But when we get into information now, and we say to a computer, make up the sentence, Joseph loves Mary, this now is quite different. This is a huge number of specific letters, characters, especially if we put a period at the end, and spaces that are into it, up to about 17 ins instructions that we would need to program the computer to develop this. Which, now we have something that's specific, it's very complex, it's non-repetitive, and the whole you have to develop prior to the parts. Having a bunch of letters, like an alphabet soup, and you make soup and and you just happen to dump your bowl out onto the table by accident, and all of a sudden the letters go into, wow, Joseph loves Mary. I know I must marry Mary. That It just doesn't happen. The information has to be there first. The whole has to be thought of, the thought has to be there first before you can make up the individual parts or bring the individual parts together. And again, if I exchange just one letter in that whole sentence, it conveys a totally different meaning. Joseph loves Mary, Joseph loves Gary. Totally different context, totally different meaning. And it's just one letter difference. Um, um, so again, that it indicates that there's information that's there, not just some random order or, or simple um, order to it. And what do we gather from this? We gather that Information requires what? An intelligent mind to put together. Our bodies are built with intelligent information in them. It's full of intelligent information. Everything about our DNA is all about information. 
And if we have information, then there has to be, it has to have been inputted into the system by an intelligent agent, just the same way with the computer. We had to input those instructions into it in order for the intelligence to come forth. And so here's our DNA, the, the signature of our cell that, that points us to the intelligent mind behind it.
Payback error. All right, well, anyhow, we'll continue <laughs> to the last point. Because um, we've talked about a, a number of different things. And, and the last one is not so much science, but gets into what we know as our mind or our brain, the conscious mind. And we can make the assumption that there's a lot of consciousness going on in the room, or at least we can hope so. Um, although there's probably not as much consciousness now as there was at the beginning, as some people have nodded off and their consciousness has dwindled. But consciousness exists. It's real. It's around us. Although, obviously, it's intangible and it's invisible. It can't be experienced through our, any of our senses. We can't see, hear, touch, feel, smell consciousness. It's intangible. It's invisible. So then, and obviously we can't know any of these things, this belief. We can't measure a belief or a thought, although scientists have been able to measure brain waves, but that doesn't actually measure the actual thought that's going on. It can't measure desires. It can't measure emotions, although, again, we can measure the ramifications of those. As I see someone go by that I like or a pretty girl, my heart rate might go up. Or if I'm lying, my heart rate might go up if I'm being tested. But those are just the results of what physiologically is happening in your body. It's not actually measuring the desire or the thought or the feeling or the emotion or, or even the act of will that we have. It's something that's intangible, but yet we know it's so true. What does it then mean to even be human? If we could take... Lucas apart, cell by cell, without hurting him. Um, <laughs> we could try, I suppose, <laughs> rightly dividing Lucas. <laughs> um, if we could, if we could somehow take a human apart, cell by cell, we could find different aspects about them. We could see their bones. We could see their lung. Oh, look it, there's their lung. Oh, look it, there's their heart. Um, we could see various aspects of, of their being, their physical being. But we wouldn't run across anything in their body that would help us um, be able to say, oh, that's what they believe about the Bible. Oh, that's what they know about science. Or, oh, so he does like the color red more than blue. We couldn't find that if we dissected a human being. Oh, there, he's, he's feeling sad. There's his sadness. We've just found it. There's nothing in a human body like that. It's invisible. It's intangible. Because why? Because it's a spirit, not matter. And that's the big distinction between, between humans and, and all of the rest of creation. Is there's those things that are matter... And we reside in a body made up of physical matter. However, who we are, who each of you really truly are, is not the physical body of matter you reside in. It's your soul that God has put in you. The soul that will one day go back to God, the Bible tells us, for an accounting to be made of what was done in your physical body 
on this earth. See, that's who you are. That's what it means to be human, is the soul, not the physical matter that makes up your body. It's your consciousness. It's your spirit. It's your soul that's within you. It's that, that self. That's, that's who you really are. Yourself is, is not your, who, who this person is. Yourself is, is who your spirit is that God has put in you uniquely to be you. And that's why you can never take a brain out of somebody and transplant it to somebody else, and they're going to think like you did. It doesn't work because that's not how, that's not what makes up the thinking process, the brain. It's an intangible that God has created, that spirit, like he is. We are created in his image and after his likeness. So then where does consciousness come from? If everything that ever was, is, and ever will be is physical matter, as science tells us, then where did this conscious thought that only humans have come from? There has to be some reasonable um, explanation, a plausible determination from that. And that would, for the most part, again, if we, it's not rocket scientists, although some would like to think so. If all we have in this universe is, is physical stuff and, and all we're doing is rearranging it to make this planet or the other planet or this human or this animal or this creature, then there's no answer for where is consciousness come from. Unless, of course, it springs into being from a conscious being, a much bigger being that has a much greater and supreme influence and, and knowledge and understanding. So just to kind of summarize what we talked about today, science is showing us that the universe had a beginning. They're extrapolating back to a singularity and saying it all started by itself without any cause, without any direction, without any purpose, but it just happened. Whereas we're saying, yeah, you're right, the universe did have a beginning. And the beginning was with God, who said, let there be, and there was, in all of its splendor. And the proof behind that science is also showing in its study of all the fine, perfect, precise tuning of the universe, so that we are even able to be living today, here on Earth. And that life, if we go even from a global level of looking at the fine-tuning universe now to looking at life in general, it's full of irreducible complexities that cannot be explained other than through a creator that made it this way so that there's no confusion as to how it came about. And then he, used, he, he, he designs life so that the information is all within a pinhead for everything that your body needs to exist. I mean, that's fantastic. That's so huge. How do we comprehend that? Outside of looking to God with awe and amazement and honoring him. And lastly, our, our own consciousness, our ability to think and use our brains most of the time, um, can only come from a higher consciousness, and that being, obviously, God. So hopefully, as you encounter some of your different science classes and different philosophies, and different ideas of th at those you, you talk to at, at school and 
neighbors and friends and whatever it is, you begin to have a little better basis to stand on and to ask those intelligent questions of your professors or your friends or those at church or maybe your parents so that you are better equipped with, with some worldview understanding so that, again, you can be seen as someone that is, that is studied, that is approved before God, that doesn't need to be ashamed, that can stand up and boldly testify that our God created this universe. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, I can know that. So that when I hear some weird, far-off idea in school, I can say, you know what? It doesn't make any sense. And let me think about that and prove that that doesn't make any sense. So hopefully that's kind of what we gave you. And, and although you maybe are a little overwhelmed, it will give you a chance to kind of go back and mull it over in your, in your head and, and think about it. Um, so again, appreciate it. And you're, you're free to go early.